3: It's the Fulhamish podcast, your independent voice of Fulham SC. My name's Sammy James and welcome to the show today. Thank you very much for listening. And as ever, this show is brought to you by the Athletic UK. We're going to be looking back at Monday's win over Leicester City, the final word on that before looking ahead to bottom half of the table, Manchester City. Who thought we'd be saying that as we enter into December? And we're going to be going in depth on Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa. Probably our player of the season so far, certainly in my opinion, I know there'll be a few other players that might lay a glove to that claim but certainly he's been mighty impressive Peter wrote a piece about him this week and we're going to be chatting about him in depth especially after an impressive performance on Monday but before we get into that I'm just going to introduce my panelists for today Jack Collins Hayden
2: yeah I'm not too bad Sammy how are you
3: very good thank you and chief Fulham writer Peter Rutzler is back (laughs) how you doing Peter how's how's the week been since I elevated you
1: I've been, it's been fantastic you know I feel like royalty I've had a royal haircut as well it's, it's just all going well
3: yeah it's been a uh, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Fulham won a game. It was payday and there was news of a vaccine. Certainly things look a lot brighter than they did seven days ago. And Peter's got a haircut just to uh, absolutely top it off. Right, gents. Uh, before we get into it, just to say that there is around a day left of this offer from the Athletic UK, their Black Friday deal. You can get access to the Athletic for one pound a month for 12 months. They won't be doing this offer again. You've got a very limited window to claim the offer go to the athletic.com forward slash Fulham pod to get the athletic for one pound a month for 12 months. You will not regret it. It is a great investment and not a very big investment as you will just have heard. Um, right gents, um, let's do the final word for, for Monday's game. And I'll start with you, Peter, you were in attendance at the King power and what a win and what an unexpected win. We sat here seven days ago talking about how unlikely it would be how it could be damage limitation for Fulham, how it was all just about, you know, producing maybe a good performance and not disgracing ourselves. I don't think any of us in our right minds thought we'd go there and get a two nil lead for half time.
1: Yeah, we were pretty defeatist. I think, weren't we? Well, Jack was a little bit more optimistic if I remember rightly, or at least flying the flag for not, you know, just taking, taking the three uh, hits. But yeah, what well, it was a really impressive performance from Fulham. And, um, an encouraging one as well. I think, you know, when we, when we were building up to the game, we were saying, can they, can they mix it up? Can they, can they alter the way they play? Can they find that other side to them? And um, yeah, as I wrote in the piece on Monday, they did. And it was, you know, there was real discipline to that performance across the team. Uh, I think completely defined by Bobby Dakadova reed playing as a, as a wing-back slash that, that sort of second wing-back role where he's having to go forward at one, at one end and then have to sit a wing-back wing without the ball, which was most of the game. Um, I think that was a fantastic performance by him, and you know, again, you can't really pick up names because everyone was was working to a tee, and um, vindication a little bit for for Scott Parker as well. I feel like he's, he, you know, there was a sense that he might not be able to do that to to have that other side to 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 the way Fulham play, but you know, you've got the team very well drilled. The game plan was executed perfectly. Um, they caused Leicester problems, and Leicester didn't really trouble the team for most of the game. I think that's that's the the key part for me. Uh, until we get into the final 10 minutes of the game and you know it got a bit nervy and that that goal went in but to be honest the goal from Harvey Barnes was the first major clear sight of goal for quite some time Um, not since really the start of the game where they hit the woodwork twice Um, and I mean that bodes very very well and it it showed some of the quality within the team and then collectively what they can do together so going forward it's that's really really encouraging and certainly the best performance of the season so far I think.
2: Yeah I thought we would just quite sharp for the whole thing and you know obviously i hosted on on monday night and we talked about in more depth so i'm I'm not going to go completely back through all the things but i just thought it was it was a very very impressive versatile performance and there's no surprise to me that bobby over Reed has been the star man in a performance which required such versatility and adaptability considering that he was playing an unfamiliar role but also considering how brilliant he's been across the board this this game and you know, before the game started, I suggested that he would be the one on the right with Cavalero leading the line through the middle. And it, it turned out he was actually even more defensive than I thought. But I think that five at the back when we're out of possession, but springing into a kind of four-two-three-one, if you will, when we have got the board is it, such an important thing for Scott because... Playing five at the back for us, especially in possession, has been such a negative trait. And we saw under Claudio Ranieri that the players that we had at the time, albeit you know, two seasons ago, didn't fit that system, didn't suit that system. And we saw that Scott's best performances came with us looking like we were able to, to control the game and break it down. But to be able to, to switch between the two mid-game is is an incredibly important asset for us if we are going to go forward. And It gives you hope against any game in, in any game that you can look at it and go, okay, we'll sit back, we'll soak up pressure, and look. If Bobby Diawordi returns out to be the right wing back that we think he is, then then we've we've got ourselves a gem there because he's someone that you know can cause damage going forward, as we see from winning the penalty, but also was an absolute terrier there tracking runs, and it allowed Olaina, I thought, especially in the first half, to cover Dennis Pratt off, and there's so much that's been gained from Leicester from kind of picking those runners between the lines from allowing their attacking midfield players, whether that be Madison, whether that be T elements, whether that be Pratt, you know, whoever that is to, to, to really kind of drop in. And I thought it was interesting that Brendan Rodgers dropped Harvey Barnes for the game, because obviously Harvey Barnes is the more direct runner. He's the kind of the player that goes over the top to support Jamie Vardy. And Rogers obviously anticipated that Fulham would sit in a little bit more. And it, and and look to kind of unpick the lock, if you will, with with players like Pratt and, and Madison, and the fact that Bobby Deco, David Reed was able to to cover off that right hand side and and really not give any joy to, to to Luke Thomas there meant that we were we were able to cover off Dennis Pratt a whole lot better, and it, it worked for Fulham brilliantly, and and I think that that's in part due to the fact that Declan Reid was so incredibly versatile and, and was able to offer so much defensive security, you know, going one way and still allow us to spring and not be completely caught out going, going forward.
3: Yeah, I was so impressed watching on, on Monday night. I really, really was. And how for large swathes of that second half... I wasn't too worried. I mean, it was a long second half because Did Fulham didn't create an awful lot. And we were just penned in like the trenches with our back five and then a four in front. And there was a couple of moments on the counter wasn't there, but there wasn't a lot. There just actually wasn't a lot, even as a neutral to get excited about in that second half because we weren't creating an awful lot, but Leicester weren't breaking us down. It was just a stalemate for a large part of it. And even once Leicester scored, and I really was worried then, I thought, God, nine minutes plus stoppage time. This is just going to be horrible. And yeah, Leicester had a couple of moments and they got a couple of crosses in and there was a few ricochets I was worried about, but ultimately I think we had the best chance to go on and score, score the next goal in that added time. So yeah, it was a fantastic win on, on Monday, Peter. And just from the, you know, looking at the league table and yes, it's only 10 games into the season, still really early to be making big, analysis on the table as it lies but that must have been a shockwave to the other three teams at the bottom who must have looked at our run of fixtures Leicester, Man City, Liverpool and thought right Fulham could be in real real trouble because that's surely going to be zero points from nine we get our second win of the season we elevate ourselves above Burnley who'd got that all important first win against Palace and they must be thinking damn that Fulham aren't going to lie down are they this season they may they they are still very much catchable and they're going to be in a relegation battle but the game has changed a little bit
1: shock's definitely the the right word and I, I wouldn't just say that's for the bottom three and I don't mean oh gosh Fulham could be competing at other areas I'm pretty sure we'll see Fulham you know really we really scrapping out scrapping out down the bottom but I just think in terms of perception of the team um we, we we've talked about what Scott's been saying most weeks about how he feels the team's very close and he's looking at the positives. And even in those early stages, he was still trying to find the the, the encouraging aspects of, of the way Fulham were playing and, and saying look, we're, you know, there are fine margins in this league. We, we, we can work on these certain areas. We, we can, we can get results. And, and then, you know, looking back at the games that have been played, I mean, I asked Scott specifically about the first 10 games today. And again, he, he goes back over the tight margins in these games, West Ham, Sheffield United, um, Everton there's only a single goal. The penalties, and then when you actually then reassess everything in light of a performance like at Leicester, you suddenly think actually Fulham aren't a bad side. They're not the side that everyone presumed. You know, going back to Jamie Carragher's comments at the start of the season that they're just they're going straight back down. They're not they're not in that position. So that's where the shock is. I think the shock is that you know this isn't a team that you can just write off very easily and. Um, you know, I think coming into the games against Liverpool and City, I think we still have to be quite realistic about who who Fulham are playing. Um, but it's encouraging and it, it gives a sense of you know what these these aren't necessarily free hits. Um, this isn't a team that can just be swept aside really easily.
3: Yeah, Well, Jack, we we said that well, you said that there shouldn't be free hits in this league, and it was a mistake from eighteen nineteen. So, um, are we expecting three points on Saturday?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy, I think is the <laughs> craze. Um, I've heard that Olaina's already preparing to shackle Kevin De Bruyne. Um, no, look, it, it's going to be a tricky one, and uh, I think there's something to be to be gained from just having a quick look at, at Harvey Barnes's goal. Um, in that, you'd imagine that City won't play with, with with wing backs per se, but you know it is those those eights and those wingers that are going to look to get forward, and and it is that kind of front five if you will that that are going to try and cause us problems and and actually we've got a similar situation in in having to deal with players and and having everyone have their man because for the first time the the, the way that Leicester scored right the first time you'd seen everybody shuffle across and you'd seen Decordova Reid pick up Thomas you'd seen Joachim Anderson take the, take Jamie Vardy. We've seen know probably shift over a little bit towards a Harvey Barnes at this point. And then, you know, on the other side, Tosin Adarabioyo is picking up James Madison in that run alongside Harrison Reed, And Anthony Robinson's job is to cover off James Justin, right? For the first time in the whole game, James Justin gets the moment where he can look up, pick a pass and get the ball into the box and leads to a goal. And it's the first time I thought that Fulham had switched off defensively. And, and and immediately we concede, and 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 ultimately that's what we're up against here, right? We're we're up against teams that if you switch off for a split second, they are going to punish you, and we have that even more against Man City this weekend, and and even more again after Liverpool uh, the weekend after, so. There's something to be said here that it's all well and good and we should be you know, looking happily at this victory. But also you look at that goal and you think, OK, we can see exactly where that came from. Everybody needs to be on absolute tip-top form if we are to to frustrate City. And, and let's look at their game in the Champions League this week, right? And I'm not saying that Fulham are as good as Porto by any stretch of the imagination. But what what, what Porto have going for them is that they were a very, very resolute defensive side. And afterwards, you looked at, you looked at what Pep said and they said, oh, were you surprised that Porto was so defensive? And he said, ask the manager and Sergio Conceição, who's the, the Porto manager said that he was like, well, if I had the, the squad and the budget that Pep had, then I'd be playing attacking expansive football as well. And I'd be annoyed that I couldn't break down a low block. And Fulham have got to look at that and think, okay. Right, the the block frustrated them for Porto. They've played midweek. They've got to play again on Wednesday. There's there's not an easy kind of turnaround time here, and and Fulham got to try and take advantage of that. And not saying that it's going to be easy, but it's the same thing with Leicester, right? They played Braga uh, on the, on the Thursday night. They played on Monday against Fulham, and they play again tonight. And part of their eyes have got to be a bit like okay. The Europa League going on over there. I know that Leicester have qualified, but I know that Man City have qualified, but they're still looking to go out there and make a statement, to win those groups, to to make sure that their position is secure for the next stage. And at that, this point of the season, that's a massive priority because the games they play in February uh, are less easily recoverable than a group game than a, than a league game now against Fulham. So if they drop two points here yes, OK, it's annoying and City will be very, very frustrated by it. But ultimately, if they drop points next week and didn't win their Champions League group and ended up in a much harder draw in February, you'd imagine that has a much larger impact on their season. And so with that, mind, with that in mind, and I think Fulham took advantage this a little bit against Leicester, you've got to try and prey on that. And, and hopefully we can, we can do that.
3: Yeah, sadly, we really don't have as much of the advantage this time. We've only maybe an extra 24 hours, uh, Fulham, to prepare for this game than Man City. But, you know, it's small margins. Scott's talked about it um, and it certainly was did look like something that we took advantage of against uh, Leicester. Uh, Peter, this is the first time since we've started doing podcasts with you that this is a post-press pod. So you've been to the press conference with Scott Parker and we're recording afterwards. So uh, what was said? What were the interesting bits of news from it? Uh, What was Scott's uh, mood going into Saturday like?
1: Yeah, Scott's mood was good. Um, Quite upbeat. He's been quite generally upbeat throughout to be honest and it's not always been easy, Um, especially at the early uh, part of the season and his message has been consistent as, as we've been saying. So uh in terms of news today um there was Kenny Tetters the the news and obviously we've seen pictures of him back in training. Uh, Scott said last week that he was back in modified training. Um it, he won't be available on Saturday. Um he said uh it was put out that everyone else is, is fit, but I don't think that applies necessarily to to Terence Congolo. Um but in terms of everyone else it, it, it looks good. Um full options available. Um yeah, he was asked about um, the captaincy. Obviously, with with Joakim Anderson um, taking the armband for on Monday night with with Tom Kearney and Alexander Mitrovic uh, both on the bench, um, didn't really see that to be an issue. Um, sort of batted that away quite, quite, uh, quite comfortably, really. And to be honest, it didn't. Well, I mean, it didn't seem like an issue for him, and it, it seems like it's something that isn't really an issue at the moment. Obviously, it's a a bold step for for Joakim Anderson. A really positive sign as well that a new player that can come in and. Immediately fulfill that role on the field and 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 be a leader, um, which is really really encouraging. Um, but in terms of what that means and, and delving into the the science behind it, I think it's more to do with having the options that Fulham do and being able to to rotate.
2: It seems a weird thing. Like I've seen a couple of people raise this question, and and there there was there was quite a, a big fuss about Joachim Anderson taking the the armband. It didn't seem to be to me like that much of an issue because. I would suggest that maybe the only player on the pitch who, who could have had a, a bigger claim for it, in if you will, kind of via history, is is a Harrison Reed. You know, no, I don't think you're looking at uh, the rest of the team and going, oh yeah, like natural leaders in, in positions. Harrison Reed, perhaps, but you know, yeah, commanderson's obviously come in and, and and kind of marshaled the defense in that way, and and it, it seemed like a kind of a natural pick. Obviously, captain Samp a little bit when he was when he was there, and it, it was one of those things that that didn't jump out to me as being a major problem but it it looked like it was highlighted at the press conference as something reasonably major and and Scott kind of was a bit confused as to why it was being asked in such a way
1: yeah I think that's kind of the two sides of it um one side being it does I think it's from an outside you think oh we've got a change of captain there that's that's unusual it's a new player coming in this is strange but I think the impression from within the team and from within the club and Scott's thinking is that it's not it's not, not a major issue. And I, I agree. I think when you look at who could actually take that role, um, Joachim is one who, who does stand out. I, I think it was one of the most striking things, actually, when, when Joachim Anderson and, and Tyson Androbio came into the team was how vocal they were. And I remember talking about it on, on the pod before that they are really good communicators. The same with Alphonse Areola and how between that and you look back four, they are very good at um, marshalling. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Obviously, you'd expect it for, for a defender. But in terms of coming into the team for the first time and, and then taking on the responsibility to lead the team out, you know, that's, that's quite a big step. Um, but as you said, Anderson's got pedigree for that. Um, and he, he's done that before at Sampdoria. Uh, and coming through the whole way through his, his younger age groups as well, he, he was always seen as that sort of that character, a quite strong character that people would look to. So, um, yeah, I, I, non-issue, I think, for, for now anyway.
3: Uh, Maybe not an issue as such, Jack, but I looked at that lineup that um, Scott put out on... Monday and not any of those players were permanent players at the beginning of last season. So you had three players that were there last year. You had even Cavalera, Bobby Deckard Reed and Harrison Reed, all of whom were on loan at Fulham. Obviously they turned into permanent deals and were kind of permanent deals through the back door and as is, as is the modern way. But I, I thought it was a particularly interesting point. And I guess that with Kearney going out the team, you kind of had almost like the last bastion of, of old Fulham leaving this team. and, and, and we, we, a lot was said about how Scott gave the old players a a chance at the beginning of the year and kind of slowly, but surely that's been replaced over time. Now, I don't think that Kearney doesn't get back into this team. And that was my next question to you is, you know, do you see Scott making many changes, um, this weekend or is this like his away team now, or is his big six away team, um, where, where Loftus cheek plays at the 10 and then Kearney's used for the, uh, Games at home, where maybe he has more space and time to to do the damage that we know he can.
2: Um, I think there's 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 validity to some of that. Part part of me, just to address the first point, thinks that you know how many of these loan players or new signings, you know, are, are going to be permanent. And you look at you know even the likes of Ariola has a has an option in his contract. Aina has an option in his contract. We talked before about how we thought that Anderson is one that even might you know despite not having an option might be made permanent. Uh, at this point next year. Anthony Robinson's permanent. Tosin Aderbayo's permanent. Harrison Reid has now been made permanent. Uh, Angisa is permanent. It's these this isn't a team suddenly that I think, oh, none of these players are gonna be here next year. And there's an element of that that counts, I think. There's an element that's important. You know, you look at Loftus-Cheek there, perhaps, and, and maybe Adamola ola although I would say that there might be a chance for him to be a, a Fulham player next year as well if we stay up, that you're looking at a side that, that seems to have something about it and, and that kind of team spirit and all of those things. And, and, and like you say in the second part, I think what Scott proved was that he's able to rotate his side. And I'd actually potentially bring Tom Kearney back in for the weekend I think him for Loftus cheek is maybe the only you know only change I would maybe make Uh, I think that we we might look for a little bit of uh, of kind of precision in the final third Uh, And I think that we've seen with Tom Kearney that he's able to to control games higher up and he is able to to put his foot on the ball and slow things down a little bit. And and I was surprised he didn't come on uh, in some ways because I felt like when we were were just looking to slow the game down, calm it down a little bit, he would have been a nice, calming influence on the ball. And as we know, he's rarely dispossessed when we do have the ball. So it's one of those strange kind of elements. I think I would bring TC back in. Um, I think you'd have to just be be aware that he was going to play a little bit more a little bit wider than he perhaps expected he wasn't going to be that 4-4-1-1 that we we've, we've seen before especially if the you know, especially if Bobby Decodovary is gonna drop in at right midfield into that kind of right wing back slot, he's gonna to have to drift a little bit wider than he's used to. But on the whole, I, I don't think that's a problem. We've seen Tom Kenny play on the right for Fulham before, you know, a long time back, I'll admit it, but it is something that he he's been he's capable of doing. I don't think it necessarily gets the best out of him always. But if you're playing him in a four, four, one, one it with the ball that drops into a kind of right midfield role out of possession, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I think that ultimately him and Loftus-Cheek are going to be interchangeable depending on opposition. I think what we expected from from Leicester was a little bit more of a physical fight in the final third. And, you know, you look at the likes of uh, of Johnny Evans and, uh, and of uh, Wesley Fafana and you, you think, OK, they're both very, very good defenders, especially aerially. Um, and 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 maybe you don't want a, a Tom Kearney challenging in the air. You want a, a Loftus-Cheek up there to to put a little bit of pressure on. But given you don't necessarily have that against City, you have a team that are, are more willing to put the ball on the deck and play it, then then perhaps a Tom Kearney is the player that might be able to unlock that for us and release a couple of these runners on, on the overlaps.
1: I think it'd be cha- difficult to change um, a winning team, especially with the same caliber of, of opponent, but same type of match, really, from one that's worked so well. I agree that I think... Loftus-Cheek and TC Mike, it does seem that they're interchangeable. I mean, S- uh, Scott said that that's not the case. There is flexibility um, when I was asked about that. Um, but I, you, you do see them as kind of fulfilling that similar sort of 10 role or that 8-10 half role. Um, and I think Loftus-Cheek of, of Fulham's performance, I, I thought he was excellent. Everyone was, was very, very good. I mean, he worked really, really hard. But I don't think he put his uh, mark on the game in the same way that, that some of the others did um so if you were to make a change maybe that would be one area I think as we were going talking about before Manchester City are a very different team the way they play with their free eights, as, as Jack was saying and the high wingers if you're going to make a change it may need to be more tactical and I, and I wonder if for instance you don't have that same versatile wing back slash winger person and actually have someone who's a bit more stable to just to combat the spaces they try to exploit you know that's what they want to do try to stretch teams and where they've struggled is with their tempo in matches, which hopefully Fulham can can take advantage of.
3: Well, look, we're going to look more into the Man City game uh, later on in the podcast. Uh, Dom spoke to Stephen McKeonie from the Esteemed Company YouTube channel for a bit of an opposition view, but we're going to take a break, and afterwards, we're going to look in depth at Andre Frank Zambo Gisa.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal.
3: Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here, and I'm joined by Jack Collins.
2: Hello, listeners.
3: And Peter Rutzler. Hi, everyone. Well, Peter, let's delve into Andre Frank Zambangisa. And you wrote a piece on the Athletic UK um, early this week, which kind of delved into his past, really, into his history, into what took Andre all the way from Cameroon to, to Fulham in the present day. And I think the thing that struck me, Peter, is how it has not been a simple journey for Zambo and you look at his clear ability and you think it would be and what struck me and I, I guess probably lots of footballers have this is that there seemed like a lot of key turning points in his career days or decisions where actually he could have not been a footballer at all. And that obviously would have been a crying shame from the talent that we know, but um, maybe um, worth starting off before we get into Angisa a, a, a better synopsis than I'd given um, of your piece on Angisa and what you found. Cause I know you spoke to a lot of uh, stakeholders in his, his, development.
1: Yeah, no, that was a, that was a good summary, Sammy. That was a good summary. Don't do yourself oh, down. Good. Um, <laughs> no, it's a really interesting story. Um, Sammy Anguissa's uh, sort of journey from, from Cameroon to, to Fulham today. Um, as you say, it's not an uncommon one. And I think it's, it's when you when you read these stories about players developing and coming, especially players that come from outside of Europe, that come into Europe, the the, the different sort of challenges, the things that need to go your way and also the right people that believe in you. Um, some of the people that I did speak to were really important for Frank and without them and their support and belief in his ability, then he doesn't get the moves at each different stage. Um there was loads of different dynamics that were very interesting. I think the first part is within Cameroon itself, the tournament they held there where he was first spotted by scouts from lots of different European teams. You know, Marseille were the team that were there when they saw this tournament. It's an annual tournament that's held in the capital, Uende. Um It basically gets, I think it's the eight best academies in Cameroon. They come together uh, for like a week-long tournament and they're in fo- uh, two groups of four. They play each other. And then the scouts and sporting directors that are in attendance, they then select the best players and they're voted. Uh, I think there's 22 of them and then they play 11 v 11 and some subs as well. And then they're selected again, you know, the best defender, best midfielder, best attacker. And that's where Frank was was first spotted. And uh, he was spotted by a guy called Jean-Philippe Durand, who's of Marseille fame as a player as well. He won the Champions League with them and he was working for them in a scouting capacity. Um, and what was interesting is what made Frank stand out, because he said there are lots of players, a lot of talent, um, but talent only gets you so far. And particularly when it comes to players from Cameroon or from West Africa or from outside of Europe, there are other qualities that are really, really important. Um, first of all, with, with Frank, he, he talks about how he, he watched him and he was a number 10, which seems a bit strange for us now seeing Frank, uh, in his sort of midfield dynamism and, and taking the, the ball from box to box to see, to, to see that he thought of himself in that way as a, as a creative 10, um, but, you know, he, he spoke to him, he said he spoke to him and, and that uh, Frank took his advice on board that, you know, there are two sides to the game. You need to work both ways. And then in the next game, he saw him, he did put in that that work. And what's even more interesting with that, of course, is that this tournament is not a week, so they're playing every day. So you become gradually more tired as the week goes on. But in, in Frank's case, you know, he was adding more to his game that would actually, <laughs> you wouldn't really want to do if you're you're trying to battle fatigue. Um, but those qualities are so important because when you do go to France, it's a massive change. It was a massive change for, for Frank when he came over and just in the climate, you know, he, he leaves a country where the, you know, the temperature is 30 degrees or pretty regularly. And then you are coming to France and his first experience is it's snowing in, in Ram. And that, that was particularly difficult. And, and again, it's a down to how you're perceived. And, and when he arrived at, uh, at Stade de Ram, the, who are a famous French club too, and he was put with their Academy team, he, he wasn't given that, that sort of time. And, to develop, which is, is so, so important with, with these players that in terms of ad- adaptation. And and Frank's had that the whole way through. You know, you have to learn different sides to the game because he hadn't been in a professional academy. So, yeah, I, I mean, without going through the entire piece, <laughs> the yeah. uh, I look into basically that side of the, the story, how he came, came to Europe, how he then overcame rejection because Ram didn't think he was good enough, as you said at the start, Sammy, that they felt that he wouldn't actually make it as a professional uh, footballer. But he had on his side that he had been scouted by Marseille. They were very aware of him and didn't have that same assessment. They knew that with time he could develop, and Marcelo Bielsa was one of those who agreed to them. Didn't hang around too long at Marseille to work with him, but he did. <laughs> he did bring him to the club, and, and from there, he, numerous different influences, and and then went on to went on to Fulham, of course, and, and Villarreal last year, which was very important.
3: Yeah, it's a fantastic piece of Angisa, well worth a read um, on the Athletic UK app. I won't do any more to, to spoil it. Um, Jack Angisa came to Fulham in 2018 and he was almost, maybe alongside Seri, heralded as the mistake of the transfer window, wasn't he? Certainly by outsiders to the club. I think fans in the club had noticed that there was some real talent there but you know there were bad days certainly in the start i remember him getting sent off at old trafford and that was one of those days i remember where i really it all really went to shit that day and
2: we saw definitely still not a red card i'm still bitter about that well
3: yeah there it was actually a very very harsh one wasn't it but anyway he was heralded as this big mistake but we saw kind of some glimmering light at the end of that season when Scott Parker took charge in those final five, six games, we were already relegated. The games didn't matter, but we, the one thing that came to light was the performances for Anguisa. And we had this hope that he would stay with us in the championship and he didn't. And I guess in hindsight, not that surprising, but he's had a difficult time at Fulham and and it's only now, um, two years, and a bit after he joined the club that people maybe outside of Fulham are actually starting to know the, the quality uh, of Anguisa. And there were quite a lot of people saying, I'd love to say I knew that Andre Frank Zambo was a great player, but I'd never heard of him until Monday. And um, I think there would be a lot of people that stood up and uh, paid attention after, after what was not just a brilliant assist, but a fantastic all-round performance.
2: Yeah, I think this is it. Like, you know, we, we saw Angisa come in, and he, it's important to remember that he was chucked into like a really weird, unfamiliar situation. And now I think that Angisa is probably still a six. You know, I think he has elements of of box to box about him, but he is a six that bursts as opposed to, you know, a kind of pure eight. And actually, Harrison Reed provides the kind of balance to that because he's a more of a destroyer type. But he has he has more energy in that way. He's willing to kind of break up play a little bit more. We chucked Zambo in. He'd been playing with Luis Gustavo alongside him for the most part for Marseille, who was also able to get forward a little bit, but ultimately kind of relied, they relied on each other to to cover up each other's defensive frailties in many ways. And, and, and alongside each other in a double pivot, they worked really nicely together. Now, there was a lot of chat because he made the mistake that led to the first goal in the Europa League final before we signed him, et cetera, et cetera. But that mistake was kind of allowed to define a player that actually played really well up to that point in the final and then played reasonably well after it, to be honest. And it's one of those things where we chucked him in. We played him behind John McElserie and Tom Kearney, both of whom had no interest at all in doing any defensive work at the time. And that's not a a complete... You know, cop out for either of them that it wasn't what their duties were at the time, and I think we've seen Kenny's role develop since then, where he is able to do that a little bit more. Less the less said about Seri, I think perhaps the better at this point, given what we're looking at in the club. But. If if we played Zambo in a in a pivot, then we saw a little bit more out of him. And actually, when Scott Parker came in and did reinstatement to the team, we saw him alongside a little bit more balanced midfield. And I don't think Callum Chambers was the answer as a defensive midfielder. But at the same time, it gave Zambo a little bit more balance to work off. And we started to see better performances from him and, and the energy and bustle in midfield that it'd become kind of used to in, in, in that Marseille side. So there's a there's a kind of element to this. And then and then he went to Villarreal and he kind of exploded. I, I think it, it is the easy way to say it. He he learned to play at Villarreal in a load of different ways. He adapted his game. He grew a lot. He played alongside some some pretty mad players in that midfield. You know, you, there's one side of you you ended up with with Santi Cazorla on, on one side, and then and then Bruno, obviously, who's a you know a Villarreal legend, but also was able to just kind of guide their steps a little bit more. And and that Villarreal side were, were very exciting. They were. They were quite fun. They made a late dash up the table and, and so much of it was based off this kind of very energetic midfield that, that also were, were able to play and, and and allowed the kind of front three of Gerard Moreno and Sammy Chiquese and, and all of those players to, to bounce off them and, and really kind of explode into life in the final third. and And ultimately, I think what we've seen is a player come back to us. Who's a lot more rounded than he was when he left. And even then, and and, and far even more rounded than he was when he left Marseille. And so over the course of these two, three years, yes, it hasn't all been smooth sailing for Frank, but he has become a much, much better player. And I think we're seeing the fruits of that now. And, and ultimately you're looking at that and thinking there isn't many sides in the division right now that Frank doesn't get into.
3: Well, that was uh, my next point, Jack. So perfectly segwayed. Um, Peter Frank is clearly going to be sought after after this season ends. Obviously, we don't know whether that ends up with Fulham being in the Premier League or not. I think if we're in the Championship, then there's absolutely no question, is there? And uh, there's a there's a big question over lots of our players. So let's let's pray, hope and pray we we stay up. Even in that sense, Frank is going to have a lot of suitors because there's not many teams that wouldn't want a bit of that in their in their side.
1: Yeah, I think if he continues his his current form, um, there'll be a lot of teams that would be after him. And I think there were in the summer as well anyway. Um, Circumstances made that difficult with the the pandemic, but also real resistance from from Tony Khan and and from Fulham. I mean, Frank's got a fantastic relationship with with Scott Parker, as as we've seen, Um, and that really did help. Um, But there was no, there was a real keenness to keep him, you know, he'd, he'd He'd said to, well, I understand that he said to the medical staff that he would be back when they're in the Premier League the following season. Almost more in a joking way, I imagine. But he he was true to that, Um, the resisted interest. You know, Villarreal wanted to keep him. Of course, they did after the season they had. You know, they finished fifth under Javi Kaleja. And coming in, you know, AC Milan were interested as well. There were other clubs in who playing European competition and you know from Frank's perspective I think he he sees himself as playing at that level you know he did it at Marseille he got to the Europa League final and I agree with Jack about obviously his performance that day that his error was was awful but of course it masked what was actually a really good first 25 minutes and actually a decent performance overall as well Um, so in terms of where he will see his trajectory and and where he can play yeah there's there will be interest especially if he keeps up his, his current form I think that's that's to be expected and uh, I guess for now, the hope is to be that he continues that form and can keep, help keep Fulham in the Premier League.
3: Yeah. Well, you spoke to for this article that you did, Peter, uh, Cameroon manager Tony conce Um and uh, obviously uh, a great coup to, to speak to Frank's national manager um, about 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 Frank, basically. Now this audio, um, isn't of Tony Conceição. It is Tony Conceição's translator. And we've cut out the Portuguese because we thought that we'd spare you the two minutes of a different language, but the words are from, from Tony. Uh, so we'll start off with, with Peter's question about, uh, Tony's first impressions of, of Anguisa.
1: From the people I've spoken to, he's always been seen as quite a, a quiet person, but also a very loyal person, a hard worker for, for the cause, and I imagine, particularly with it being a home tournament, this is something that really motivates him.
0: They started working with with Anguissa while he was still at at, uh, at Vila Real. Mm-hmm. So when he started um, working for, for as as Cameroon head coach, they look at the previous call ups, and uh, and Anguissa was one of the players whose past they looked at, and you know, and who who they considered immediately. Um, in terms of, of uh, you know your question regarding dressing room and etc he he in, in these individual talks that they have with the players he he understood that he was in fact a very loyal person very upfront in terms of you know saying what goes through his mind um, and and currently he's one of those uh, one of those hardcore players that any dressing room needs um, according to Antonio 5 or 6 players that every dressing room needs he is currently one of the captains and during the last match against Mozambique, when Abu Bakr was subbed, he, he, he took on the captain's armband. Um, and as such, he is, one of the, he is the extension of, the, of a coach's voice on pitch. So, so all, all indications, et cetera, that, that the coach will have will, uh, will go through players like Angisa in this case.
1: Where, where does he rank in terms of ability and, and potential for Antonio and the players he's worked with? And going
0: forward, what, what, what does he see for Frank? In terms of in terms of Anguissa, he is a he's a um, quality player. In in football, there are you know there's the, the collective is the most important. So you have to have um, teams uh, players that work for the team. Um, mm. wh- while um, Anguissa is, is not a Messi or, or Ronaldo, um, he's a player that has a lot of uh, a lot of capacity to you know to to be in the match, and and he brings a lot of tactical culture uh, and rigor to the team. And then, and then he has got a he's got a really good uh, a really good passing ability, both long and short passing. He's got a really good passing ability. So he's he really is one of those players that makes the team tick without necessarily being the standout
3: as you can tell from that audio and uh, the the full chat you had with with Tony uh, that I got sent earlier on WhatsApp was uh, a full 45 minutes. So it was a long time that you were on the phone to uh, Tony and translator. But I think what you can certainly glean from that couple of minutes that we played just there is how highly he thinks of, of Frank, not just as a player, but clearly as a person you know he said he sees him as one of his captains and that he's it sounds like he's almost the heartbeat of this cameroonian side as far as as Sow is is concerned and that's equally as impressive we know that zambo's a good player but what we don't necessarily know is what his character is like and you know we talked about captains earlier and how anderson was given the armband but it sounds like conceivably Issa seems like captain material going forward. And certainly that's how he's viewed for his national team.
1: Yeah. It, I think that definitely came across from, from Tony. This just his leadership sort of role, which, which, it, which become more important um, for, for, for Cameroon because they are hosting the next African Club of nations tournament as, as we've discussed on, on the pod before. And um, he, he certainly sees Frank as like this player that can be a conduit almost to, to his teammates and, and, with that experience at elite level, that, that, that helps. And, you know, there's some good players in that team too, that he can, yeah. that he can rely on and, and putting Frank in that bracket is important. It was his comments about, um, dealing with pressure. He also talked about, um, you know, how, because of the tournament, there is pressure and he sees Frank as a player who can also cope with that expectation, which there will be, you know, uh, I think, uh, in the piece I mean, he talks about how, um, after the recent game, the Cameroon's recent game against Mozambique, where which is behind closed doors, you had fans coming out on the street, he said. So it's the passion for football there is huge and the expectation on him is huge as well. Um so being able to cope with that is a is a key asset. But again, it goes back all the way to how he was able to to progress when he came to France. You know, you need to have those mental qualities to to take rejection, to learn, to adapt, to, to, to take on new instruction and, and very new things very quickly. Uh, and it 's clearly an environment that Frank has done very well in and his hand has already impressed his his national team coach,
3: so Jack, do you think that Frank now plays pretty much every week as 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 far as i 'd look at it there's not too many teams where I would say need to be on the team sheet uh, ahead of him, and you know we've got a lot of quality midfielders we 've talked about this, but Frank. Right now, I can't see a reason why Scott would ever not put him in his starting eleven if fit.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I suppose that the big question remains over this season with fixture congestion and the fact that there are you know, factors outside of our control, then, then obviously there's going to have to be a little bit of rotation and it's nice to have quality backups in these areas. But yeah, I would suggest that Frank is the first choice central midfielder when, when, when that's available because he's able to do a little bit of everything. Like we say, you know, he's a much more rounded player than the player that we saw when he came to Fulham the first time. And he's able to, to control games a little bit more to sit and and to hold. And as we saw in the second half, to be able to, you know, dominate and win the ball back. Um, but also, as we saw in the first half against Leicester to break and, and and actually make make chances for Fulham and and be able to carry the ball when he carries the ball you know in and, and he's running there's very few people that, that are able to dispossess him he's an incredibly powerful runner and and he's an incredibly technically gifted footballer when he's dribbling and in in those two things together make him a very very important Porn for Scott no matter what's happening because if we're in a game where we're looking to break down along a low block he's got the the ability on the ball to be able to manipulate it nicely and and be able to shift it around but if we are defending from deep then he's got the the ability and 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 the the desire and drive to get Fulham up the pitch quickly as we saw for Lookman's first goal against Leicester so so with that all in mind if Anguistra is fit and we're not worrying about squad rotation in terms of depth and and timing and and how tired every Everybody is then yeah I think that you it's very hard to look past him as the first name on the team sheet
3: is he and I've seen quite a few people say this on Twitter this week the best player we've had at Fulham since Dembele uh,
2: yeah probably um, it, it, it depends it's an easy thing to throw at them because they're both similar midfielders right they're, they're both they're both you know, quite graceful on the ball, but able to to put in a tackle. You know, I don't think he has quite the goal scoring capability of, of Moussa Dembele, who was, you know, reasonably lethal from the edge of the box. Um, obviously, Frank scored for Cameroon, in the latest international break, but uh, is yet to get off the mark for Fulham. And it's not, not a facet of his game that we've seen hugely, no matter where he's been, to be honest. He didn't score Manny for Villarreal. I can't recall him scoring a particularly heavy amount of goals for Marseille either, which means that you know this isn't necessarily an element of his game that he's got. But in terms of quality in the centre of the park, I think so. You mean the question is Dimitar Berbatov, I'd say, is is probably the the name I'd throw out there. You know, Dimi Berbatov is probably the player of the most quality, perhaps we've ever had at Fulham, and he came after Dembele. So but he played in a very different position, doing a diff- very different role, so they're very hard to compare um, in terms of pure ability on the ball. I'd, I would say maybe Dembele and perhaps a Brian Ruiz, but but you know, I think I think Anguissa is definitely the best midfielder we've had since since Dembele in terms of what he brings as an all round player.
1: Huge praise. I think what was interesting just to take from from the conversations I had about Frank is that there's this sense that there's more to come. And I know that that can be thrown around quite a bit, but as Jack was just talking about there, he's not really known for his attacking play. I wouldn't say that's a strength of his at the moment. Um, but his, the way his game has sort of evolved, you know, as I said at the start, you know, he, he played as a number 10 when he was first playing, um, then went into a professional environment and became a very sort of defensive player, was very good at ball recoveries, has that energy and dynamism in the middle to, to really help dominate games. Um, but there's also a sense that he can influence the other end of the field. You know, Javi Kaleja was really big on that. And he, he was saying that, you know, he just playing a defensive role probably limits him and that he does have the qualities to be effective going further forward. His dribbling ability, especially, we see that in, in games, you know, where he can just turn away from people, drive with the ball and the, the, the right deafness of touch to 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 change a, change direction. But of course, that, that these are areas that he can work on and Scott Parker said that today as well. He sees that there's more room for him to develop and to grow and, from what we see now, we can already say that you know he looks like a fantastic player, and, and you're, you're, you guys are comparing him to some of Fulham's best players already, which is which is a compliment to him. And the fact that there is still that room to grow is a really encouraging thing. And I think the more we see him play, the you know the the more we might get of that. And actually, to be one of the interesting things as well, um, while while I talk about that, is there's a sense that whenever Frank plays against better opposition, he tends to up his game. Um, that's the sense from from those who've worked with him. Some of those who are close to him, they think that when you put him in a tougher environment, he he adapts quite quickly. Um, so it'll be interesting to see this weekend, see how he does against Manchester City. I don't think there's a much tougher midfield test than, than playing City in the way they play. And then Liverpool the week after. So that they could be real barometers <laughs> of, of what
2: Frank can do uh, going forward.
3: It doesn't get much tougher.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a the big two-test him. But I think it's interesting what you said there. And it just, it just reminded me of something I've been thinking about recently, is that... There's there's often players who who play at a, a higher level club wise than perhaps some of their compatriots, especially in the in the position they play. And and my heart my head went out to to John Obi Mikel right, who came in as a ten and then ended up playing as a as a defensive sort of six eight for Chelsea, but always played as a ten for Nigeria. He always always kind of gravitated back to that role in terms of what he brought to his national team. And I, I was just kind of having a look through the the Cameroon midfield and. Obviously, there's a couple of players there. Arna Jume, who who plays in Bel, well, he played used to play in Belgium, and, and now plays for Al Rayad. And and the one that kind of stands out, I suppose, is um is Pierre Kunde, who plays for Mines. Um, but they're both kind of defensively minded players that aren't aren't known for scoring goals. And and actually, for Cameroon, Franks tended to play a little bit more in front of them, um, and, and play a little bit further forward. And we've seen him affect that in a different way. I mean, you look at his goal record for club. And it's not great, as we said. But you look at his goal record for country, and he's got three and twenty-seven, which is far higher at any point than what he scored. He's got two for VRL alone, and, and and none for Fulham and none for Marseille. Which means he's got more international goals than club goals, despite having you know a good one hundred and fifty odd less appearances, which is interesting in terms of where he plays. But also just you know, as Peter says, and to, to compound that point, this sense that there might be more. In that area, as he develops and as he continues to to fulfil himself as an all round midfielder, and it'd be really interesting to see where that goes as as the season progresses. Because a lot of the time now, we'll see Frank get the ball on the edge of the box, and at the moment, he's just looking to manipulate it and move it around and and bring other players into play. But adding a long range kind of dime to to that game would would make
3: him quasi unplayable, I would say. Well, I mean, I think that it almost could be the one thing, couldn't it, that would just take him to the stratosphere in Fulham fans' opinions at the moment. If there was, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a long-range missile or anything like that. Just any kind of goal would be um, such an addition. And also, unfortunately for Frank and his timing the games that he played well for Fulham were pretty much once we were relegated in, in eighteen nineteen. He, there were no real impressive performances that I can massively remember before we were relegated in games that actually mattered. And then he's come back and played really well for Fulham when there's no fans in the ground. So I, I think the last thing that I would, you know, let's who knows his future beyond this season. I really hope one reason why we can get back into grounds. And if we could see him playing really well in games that matter in the flesh, then and if he adds a goal or two to that as well then i think the sky's the limit in terms of opinions of him from from fulham fans which which is very high already so um yeah i'm really excited to see what what where we see from the zambo from the rest of this season right we're going to take another break and afterwards we're going to get an opposition view on this weekend's game against mad city Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Peter Rutzler and Jack Collins. And we're going to cross over to Dom Betts, who has ever brings you the opposition view each week on this podcast. And this week he spoke to Stephen McKinney from the esteemed company company, Vince and company, YouTube channel. I like what they've done there. Uh, and Dom started off by asking the reason for City's disappointing start to the season by their standards.
4: Um, That's fair, yeah. We haven't had um, our usual, I guess, enjoyed the Viva. We haven't really been that expansive. We haven't really been that creative. We haven't scored that many goals either. The Burnley game was a bit of a, I guess is a bit of an anomaly for us this season. Uh, we'd scored, I think, the least amount of goals, uh, we had the worst goal difference we've had since the 06 07 season, which I think was Stuart Pearce, which was terrible. I know that, that season, like, we never scored anything. Um, so yeah, we've been struggling to score goals, um, and uh, struggling to win games at times. Um, I'm hoping things are about to change. I mean, obviously, you never really know in football, it does feel like we've got a little bit of energy back at the moment. Um, but it hasn't been a good start, and I think that's probably fair to say. And I think most teams. I know, but obviously, we're still pretty damn good overall, so I'm not going to play too much. But I think most teams probably won't fare as as much as they used to at the moment, uh, and that's understandable given City's, um, I guess I say troubles, but it has been it has been a very lukewarm start to the season so far.
5: And if you, going into the season, obviously, what what happened last year, Liverpool completely ran away with it. What what sort of yeah. was what, what were your expectations
4: going into the season? Was it
5: to get close to the level was it to win back your title is it looking to get
4: that Champions League finally well to be honest given everything given City's investment you know like no one's naive to this even most City fans admit like you know we've spent a lot of money on our team and we've got one the, the one if not the best manager in the world and some of the best players in the world so there's I mean expectations and what you'd hope for I mean I always expect that Man City these days should be challenging for the league you know we, we should like that's just I mean I'm not saying we should win it every year because obviously that's unrealistic but given you know um what we invest in our club in general city have to be near the top. And I you know I mean I'm slightly more optimistic than some city fans. I think most knew that this year was going to be difficult given um I mean, I'm not complaining because obviously life's still pretty good for City fans, but we knew we were in for a little bit of a difficult year, potentially, given obviously David Silver leaving, you know. And obviously, we hadn't at the, at the start of the season, we hadn't really yet replaced Vincent Company either, which is obviously a year of problem. We have not like we have now in Diaz, by the way, but at, this, at the start, we probably weren't sure. And then we had a feeling that Ndino was going to be a bit injured. And Aguero is obviously seems to be on his way out, unfortunately, due to her injuries. So I think some City fans kind of expected it to be potentially a bit of a you know, maybe a bit of a transition from those plays to the next generation. Um, so we expected some kind of... Um, the realistic ones are expected some difficulties. I mean, obviously, you never know how far it's going to go. But even having said that, um, the expectation still, rightfully so, um, is that we should be challenging for the league. And I, I think we will do. I think we've obviously had a slow start. But I think it's a weird year, you know. It's a strange year for everyone uh, in every sense of life. And um, I do think it's going to see fruit results. I do think teams... Um, uh will drop points where they wouldn't usually because of I guess you know the schedules and all that kind of stuff and once again I'm not complaining just I think it's a matter of fact Um and obviously as well like the fan's in stadiums and all these kind of things so um it's a weird time but having said that I still respect City should be aiming for the uh, latter stages if not hopefully winning um you know, the Champions League and the latter stages of the title race as well, the Premier League. With City this season, your home record has stayed
5: fairly, fairly good th- throughout this season so far, really, apart from that uh, loss to Leicester, really, I think you're still unbeaten a home yeah. in the league, apart from that game. It's just been the away games where you've been dropping points. Uh, last, you know, we saw at Tottenham the other week. Going into this game against Fulham, obviously, it's a game, you know, or, or, to be fair, but until a f- 13, 14, we actually had a fairly good record up at uh, the, at the Etihad, you know, I remember the three-two when we came from 2 0 down. We came two-two uh, when we came from two-nil um, down. I think there was there was a two-one or 2 0 victory as well. Uh, yeah. Back back back, you know, in the years under Hodgson and Mark Hughes, Martin Yell kind of thing. Um, so going going into this game, do you th- do you think it's a bit like the Burnley game that if you put, it's all
4: about putting your sort of start, stamp on the game early on. Um, yeah, if I'm being honest, I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's tough for Fulham this season. You know, um, you've got some decent players and um, I kind of do want to see Fulham stay up. And I, I actually think you might do. Um, but I do think, you know, I think if we're both being realistic. City obviously have more quality than Fulham. and um, If City do get an early goal, I, I worry a bit for you guys in the <laughs> nicest way possible, of course. I worry a little bit that it could be that we overrun you a little bit because... Um, City are very much a confidence team at the moment, which is, you wouldn't associate it with City, you think they'd be confident constantly, but at the moment we do seem to be quite reactive in terms of individual moments of um, play, like if we have a good 10 minutes, we seem to react to that pretty well, if we have a poor 10 minutes, we seem to kind of look a little bit like, kind of out of ideas, and um, I think the if, if Fulham can hold us, you know, if you guys can hold us for the half, I would feel very confident at that point, if you guys get a point or something like that, or maybe even, you know, nicking a goal and getting some of honors because, um, we aren't that good at scoring goals at the moment. So that first half is going to be really, really key. I mean, as we're recording this, City just played um, Porto and uh, we had something like, uh, I think it was 18 shots to there too. We, we couldn't score, you know. We had a goal disallowed, but we were all over them, but we're still struggling to score goals. And I mean, I think you'd probably take a point, wouldn't you, at the moment, you know, like uh, the Etihad and stuff like that. So you could easily do that because you've got the quality to do it. Tosin Adorabayo, since he's come in for us, I think he's been...
5: Far a couple of mistakes sublime so far. I yeah. think he's brought, um, he's not obviously, he's tall, but he's, he's not the most physical kind of, Centre no. back but but he's he's been so comfortable on the ball for us and he seems to his positional awareness was is has been exceptional he's really built a partnership so far with Wacky Manderson Deloney we got in from Olympic Leon um what was sort of the reaction to City when they let Tosin Rabayo go because obviously he's been at your Houston, and he's gone out on loan did city ever think he'd get a chance to prove himself or was it just time for him um, to sort of make a career
4: for himself I was gutted on even being honest. Um, I think he's a better footballer than Eric Garcia. I, and that's a controversial opinion for Manchester City fans, but I think he's genuinely better. Garcia um is uh he's kind of, he wants to leave, he'd probably go into Barcelona, but I honestly think is better, which sounds really mad, but Garcia is small, uh, not strong, not fast. He can pass the ball a little bit, but that's just kind of about it. And Adobe is tall even though he's obviously not like a physical beast in the way that someone company or Van Dijk is, he's obviously a big guy. You know, you're not really going to push him around. Um, Adorabayo's got... I, I've been watching Adorabayo for an awful long time because I've spent an awful lot of time watching City's academy sides and I've been following his progress. I remember first seeing him when he was 16 for our under-18s and he was always um, the kind of player who looked like football was too easy for him to an extent because obviously at that point he was much bigger than anyone else. He's got that very kind of... um relaxed gait hasn't he about him the way he holds yeah. himself he's very calm he's very laconic and very composed and he was always very 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 good for academy size and to be honest i will i've always felt that adrobai will, will be a little bit of a, a late bloomer compared to some and i don't not really late but i'm talking as the age is now around 23 or something like that compared to you know some people who end up becoming world stars by 20 but i mean you've only got to look at someone like van Dy, for example i mean he was playing at celtic you know in a, which is i think i think the SPL overall, in terms of the quality, is lower level than the Championship. In my personal opinion, you know, Celtic may be better than some of the Championship sides, but overall, the quality—I'm not saying he's going to reach those levels, but he was playing at a similar level. Is the point I'm making? You know, in terms of overall, and look at. That. It took Van Dijk a few years to get to his very best. And he was like mid to late 20s when he reached there. So I'm not saying he's going to do that. But some people are very quick to rule out Adrobio. Some City fans were too. And I think Man City were as well. And I think Adrobio, obviously, he's made a few mistakes for you guys. But you can tell this is a guy who's stepping up massively. You know, He's barely played two, four seasons of football so far in his his entire career. And you can tell he's still growing into his frame a little bit as well. I reckon you'll get... A year, a year ago, if you watched him just before his loan at Blackburn, when he was at West Brom, he was even more. You know, he was tall, but he was even lankier. He was really stick thin. I followed his progress quite a lot, and he's got naturally stronger as he's got more confident as well. So he's getting physically a little bit, bit filling out a little bit. Um, I think he's got he's all to his game to get better and better as he gets older. I really want to succeed. I genuinely really want to succeed. And I'm uh two million for us giving away him. And you're you already know personally that he's Premier League quality, you know. How good he can be, I don't know, but he's definitely better than two million. You've got an absolute bargain. I mean, you, you see players like, you know, Dominic Solanke, who's barely played a football, you know, to, to, to get, gets a ball for Liverpool going for 20 million, you know, to like teams like Bournemouth. And we sold a player who's clearly a competent center back and homegrown and uh uh, for two million, I was really, really disappointed. I know a lot of City fans are. And um, I honestly genuinely hope he does really well because I think he's got a lot to prove to City. Uh, I think he should have personally been you know, one of our backup defenders. Um, but he wanted to move on. It was his decision to move on. City did offer him a contract. Uh, I know people close to him as well, like genuinely very close to him. And he just wanted to go out there and play some football regularly. And I don't really blame him, I guess. And uh, I honestly hope he has a, a really good season for you guys and hopefully he keeps you up because he's, he's got... Even though he's got a lot to prove, still, of course, I think he's got all the attributes to be a very, very, very good centre back.
5: If you obviously looking at the Fulham team, you know you, we spoke about we've got, we're going to be playing on counter attack, and we saw against Leicester that we can hit teams on a counter attack if there are oh, lapses in defensive concentration. Would you look at you know if, if Adam Lutman Lutman's one of them, but one one interesting player. Is Andre Frank Zambo and Gisa, who's come back into our midfield after being on loan at Bitter last season? And one one thing he's been great at is sort of breaking through the line. sort of play, he's playing in the middle of sort of a number 10 and then a, and a defensive midfielder, sort of having that space. The Roman, one of his best things has sort of been dribbling past teams' midfields. Is that, would you say that's something that would worry City fans of a player who maybe
4: break those lines to start the counter attacks? Um, yeah. I think he was good against us. Spurs and Bailey was pretty good at doing that. And obviously, um, as we discussed earlier, the counter-attack is the biggest thing. I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've not watched much of you guys this season. Like, um, obviously, it's, it's just the world's a bit weird, as we all know at the moment. So I'm kind of really just focusing on Man City at the moment. Um, I haven't really seen him much of him play, but if you've seen him, I've seen his name mentioned around. like Some people seem to be quite excited by him. Um, and if he has got that kind of uh, dynamism to essentially skip past the midfielder or two. Um, I think it's probably fair to say he could be successful because as good as the players we've got are, um, Roger and Gundogan aren't the quickest. They're not the most dynamic. They'll probably play this game. Um, they can be beaten by a little bit of skill, you know, a little bit of pace. Um, and under, under Bailey was really good against us uh, for Spurs. Um, very good at just kind of nipping between defenders. Um, that, if you really, if your guy releases the ball quickly, you know, towards Luckman, people like that, um, it could be a place where you could target City because, we have been known to concede goals on the counter, and
5: obviously you saw sort of sp- you saw sort of spoke about players you think will play. So if you're going to go for a proper predicted lineup
4: uh, for Saturday's game, what are you going to go with? Um, probably be uh, Edison uh, Mendy at left back, uh, Diaz and Stones and Kyle Walker. Uh, then I reckon it'll be um, Rodri and Gundogan uh, with Kevin De Bruyne ahead of them, uh, and then probably Phil Foden. On the left, with Gabriels is for the middle, and Morris on the right. Yeah,
5: and obviously that that is... This is the great thing, I think, about Mass City. No, You've know, you just seen there's players that can just sort of come from nowhere <laughs> to come in, and, and, and who, who... Like Phil Foden, who I think actually, personally, is... Everyone mentioned Grealish and the impact he's had in the team, but I think Foden's had pretty much a similar impact and he's still so young. He's and brilliant, he, man. He's, he's going he's to be the, the, the mainstay of the season team for the next decade, really. But if, if I'm going to push you for, uh, for a final question and a prediction for Saturday's game, Stephen, what are you going to go with?
4: Sorry, I'm going to go for a, a relatively comfortable City win. I'll say 3-0. Apologies. <laughs> But yeah, well, I, I mean, be to be fair,
5: compared to our recent trips at the SEA, that'll be that'll be a lot less than it has, than
4: <laughs> it has could, been recently. I could be miles wrong, by the way. You could, you could frustrate us and get, you know, get a one or draw or something like that, or even a nil nil. But I feel like the game against Burnley was a bit of a turning point for us recently. Yeah. City started, I mean, it's probably bad timing. If you played us two weeks ago, I would have given you a very different scoreline. But we've started creating chances again. Obviously, there's no guarantee we're going to score him, but we have started creating chances. And defensively, we've been pretty solid, so from my perspective, Fingers crossed.
3: Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. Thank you to Dom and Stephen for that opposition view on all things Man City. And as ever, uh, there is a much longer version of that chat on the Fulhamish YouTube channel. Just search for Fulhamish on YouTube and it should be one of the first videos that come up. One of the things we haven't discussed today, chaps, is uh, the ticketing Uh, for Fulham. Uh, The ballot for the three games in December opens uh, tomorrow as we speak on Friday uh, for season ticket holders from last year. Uh, We spoke about loyalty points last week and it doesn't look like any of that's been heeded. Um, I'm not going to get into it now, but very, very interesting. So basically you put your name forward. Uh, Basically you have to put your name forward for all three games, whether you can make it or not, and then you'll get allocated a game and you can go to one of them. And it looks like 2000 fans will be let into the ground uh, for those matches. Matches. So, I guess we'll probably have more next week on on any fallout from that. It'd be very very interesting to uh, to see who goes and, and who doesn't. Um, I'm not expecting too much, but you never know. If I could go to one out of the three, I certainly will be uh, pretty delighted. But we'll uh, we'll wait and see uh, what happens. So, chaps, thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Jack Collins. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sammy and Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Uh, I will be back uh, Sunday evening, Monday morning, looking back at the Man City game and easy three points in coming. Hopefully be the first podcast where I'm talking about a win. Jack has had both winning podcasts this season and to say I'm a little bit annoyed uh, puts it lightly.
2: I'll sack him. He's a bad luck charm, I say. I'm a, a really somebody, bad Somebody luck. sack this geezer and get me in, George. <laughs>
3: I also haven't done either of the cup wins either. I've been a terrible um, luck. So uh, yeah, another loss in coming on Saturday as I'm on the pod. Thank you for listening. Have a good weekend. Come on, you guys.
2: You're right.